beautiful emotion that I call the all-purpose healing balm of the soul. What sadness does is it comes forward to help us let go of something that isn't working anyway. But if people don't understand their sadness, they think it comes to steal their stuff. And I'm like, no, sadness does not steal your stuff. It comes forward to help you when there's something that isn't working. And that's a relationship, clutter, some ideas you have, right? Just things that aren't working. Sadness will come and help you relax, release, and let go. Just let it go. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is, of course, Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. I'm an amazing father, husband, son, friend, leader, lover, and a master coach. And I spend every minute of the day helping people live a kick-ass life. Welcome. Booyah! To the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. Those of you who've been listening to me for the last eight years would have noticed that I added a little bit extra onto my usual intro. That's because I've been playing around and reveling in, hmm, what would it be like to stop saying, I am not this, I am not that, I don't behave like this, I am giving up this, I'm stopping that, and instead leading with a little bit more positive language, right? Like, I am not an alcoholic. You know, I want to say that because I'm not, because it helps a lot of people. But at the same time, what am I? You know, like, let's get it out there. I'm an amazing father, amazing husband. I'm a super duper lover in the sack. Yeah, right. And I'm a master coach. So I'm going to let people know that from now on. And I suggest you do the same, folks. Anyway, today I am speaking to an amazing person. You know, like every now and then someone comes along and just kind of like fucking rocks your world. Well, Carla McLaren did that for me. I literally was sat where I am right now, staring at my wife's bookcase uh, with a pile of books that mean nothing to me, like the menopausal years. Nah, not for me. Girls, rule your world or something. Nah, not for me. Uh, Cinderella ate my daughter. Not for me. The mists of Avalon, not for me. But there was a book there and it was the language of emotions. And I don't know what the the key was, but I just remember thinking to myself, you know what, we're not talking about this in Strive. We're not really talking about our emotions, and I don't know that much about them. So I'm going to read this book. And I read it, and it blew my mind, right? It blew my mind. It opened me up to what I think should be a bread and butter topic at school for all of our kids. And I read it, and I was like, whoa. And Carla, along with coaching containers like Kaboom and Elementum, have really, really helped me understand that behind every single decision to drink alcohol is an emotion driving that decision. And you end up here because you use alcohol as a compensatory strategy to deal with that emotion or to certainly uh, repress it or suppress it or express it dishonorably, right? So if we want to be people that don't drink alcohol and live kick-ass lives, we need to learn to feel again. We need to learn to feel again, right? So Carla McLaren's work is amazing. And today we talk about shame. We talk about anger. We talk about fear. We talk about sadness. We talk about joy. And for one, for somebody who is very special to my heart, and you know who you are out there, I even talk about hatred, okay? And it's an amazing conversation. This woman is epic. She's absolutely epic. She has a new book out uh, around... Um, emotions at the workplace go buy it go buy language of emotions go to her website devour everything she's got because you need we are feeling we're human beings we're not human doings and every emotion 
is a gift and we need to learn that, all right? So Carla McLaren is an award-winning author, educator, and social science researcher. Her work revalues even the most negative emotions and opens startling new pathways into self-awareness, effective communication, healthy empathy. She's the author of The Power of Emotions at Work. That's her new book, Embracing Anxiety and the Language of Emotions. And she's a developer of the online learning site, empathyacademy.org. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and let you experience the joy the happiness, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the wit and the humor of this most beautiful human being, Carla McLaren. Well, 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 folks, as I said in the intro, we have a very special guest today, Carla McLaren. And I just wanted to start off by saying, and I'm sure you get this a lot, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving my marriage. (laughs) And... I have no idea what impact you've had on my children in the future, but I'm sure it's going to be amazing. The work that you do is incredible. And I just wanted to come out at the gate and say that you you do your work and there are so many people you don't know you're impacting. You are also impacting a lot of people. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I found your book on my wife's bookcase one day. And I was like, oh, I have a problem with emotions. I need to look at that. And then it just, I went down that rabbit hole and it was amazing. So I wanted to talk to you today just so the people listening can get a get an understanding of some core emotions and your thoughts and feelings around them. And I'm hoping some light bulbs will go. They'll pick up your book. They'll go to your site and uh, see how much wonderful offerings you've got there. And I'd love to start with anger. Anger is like, my biggest problem. So why has society got this so wrong with anger? Why why are we demonizing it? Why is that not healthy? Talk a little bit about anger, Carla. Well, I think there's one thing. Anger's job is so important. It helps us set boundaries. That's its whole purpose. And when someone has crossed a boundary or something, you're being stopped from doing something that's important to you. Your anger should arise because its job is to help you set the boundary or protect the boundary. The problem comes when people don't know how to set a boundary. And so sometimes people set boundaries that are unkind or cruel or even violent, you know, screw you. Um, that's a boundary. Um, <laughs> Sometimes people deciding that they don't, you know, they've seen anger done badly. So they decide, I'm not going to do anger. I'm not going to set a boundary. So they don't actually live their their real life. They just kind of go through saying, well, that's okay. That's okay. But then knowing inside is not okay. It never was okay. So the boundary setting is the is the key to, to working with anger appropriately, but mm. people have such a hard time with that because there's either people either go all in with just intense boundaries or all out with no boundaries. And the place in the middle is you know, setting boundaries. Even you might even want to find ways to um, like little phrases, like, hold on, this doesn't work for me. Like that's an anger boundary, but you're not hurting anybody. And everybody knows that something's going on for you, right? So it's not Mm. this passive inability to set a boundary and it's not this, you know, really intense. Now, saying that, there are times to set intense boundaries. If someone keeps pushing you and pushing you like a, 
like a con artist or, you know, someone who's really pushing you hard to buy something to Mm. be able to say no. Mm -mm. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you may need to punch people, but there's a different emotion that comes in when you're in physical danger and that's panic. Mm. And panic has that fight energy in it. Uh, Fight, flight, flee and flock to safety uh, are the panic responses. But for many people, anger and panic are connected so tightly that they don't know that there's two emotions there. Mm. So if you see any fight, flee or freeze behaviors in your anger, panic is there. And then the question is, what is what is life threatening right now? Right. Why is panic here instead of you're doing anger wrong? Rather, you're doing two emotions right now. So why is panic here? Where's the boundary? Where's the danger? And those are two questions to ask anger. But a lot of people just don't know that they've got anger and panic intertwined. So everything they do is fighting, fleeing or freezing with their anger. They mm, just I like, can see that they explode can, at people. Yeah. 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 I, I, I've never thought of it like that before. I've always just thought that I think I've coupled rage which Mm -hmm. is an intense form of anger right Mm -hmm. i haven't kind of liked a panic is different and i guess i was i was always somebody who expressed my anger dishonorably Mm. so i was the the screamer and the shouter now i can see as you're saying that that the panic for me is my inner child not getting these needs met who's suddenly flipping and getting panicking and doesn't know what to do so he just goes yeah. reverse to type. Yeah. Which is yeah. So it sort of shouting. has a tantrum. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and that's been really interesting to me that the, the, the emotion for setting boundaries is so connected to the emotion for saving our lives. And, mm. you know, I start to ask, well, why is that? You know, um, but having your boundaries stepped across can be dangerous. It's like, it's not like panic wasn't invited to this party. (laughs) (laughs) Panic has the invitation to this party. And so, yeah, and looking at when they're together. For me now, I'm just looking at all the different kinds of anger responses that are actually panic responses. Like any of the fighting, I'm going to kill you, um, screaming, yelling, uh, threatening. That's fight. Fleeing would be, um, I'm not even going to deal with this right now. Do you know what I mean? That, that you just leave the, yeah. the place. And freezing is where people literally cannot speak or act. They're so frozen in, in place. Mm. And so looking at all those different panic responses, I can now choose an anger response. I'll be like, hold on. Okay. So I want to say, hold on. This doesn't work for me. You're like, that's not freezing, fleeing, or fighting. Okay, good. That's anger. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. I mean... One of the things that I learned from you was like, I I always had, I had no problem like knowing that I had anger. Yeah. Obviously I'm learning a little bit as I'm speaking now about the, the, uh, the discerning between anger and panic, but I had really no, no, no problem with that. What was absolutely groundbreaking for me was understanding that irritation and frustration was a soft form of anger which yeah. then enabled me to set my personal boundary up and ground way ahead of time. Could you yeah, talk, <laughs> can you talk about um, the different levels of emotion and you know that kind of thing? Yeah, you bring up such an important point with anger. Certainly, if 
And I was, I was a, um, a fighter with my anger early on, but I had a lot of childhood trauma Mm. where my boundaries were crossed. And so I just needed a lot of anger to burn through that. Right. Mm. So for me, learning about soft or, or subtle forms of anger, I could grab my anger and go, okay, there's a boundary that's been crossed way before I needed to go to the yelling and punching and, yeah. and swearing and threatening. Right. So understanding that all emotions exist at this, they have a very soft and subtle presentation then they have a more medium-sized presentation where you can see okay this is definitely anger or fear or sadness then there's a more intense where everybody knows what it is because you sort of can't hold it in Mm. you're fuming or you're crying or you're you know running because you're scared so understanding that it's normal for emotions to have many different levels of activation if you've got difficulty with an emotion, and I had a, a great difficulty with uh, depression and the suicidal urge, learning soft depression and soft suicidal urge was extremely important for me because I could take care of it. And I don't mean but like erase it. I mean, thank mm-hmm. you to these two emotions, take care of the problem that they were pointing to before I got in a you know, pretty dangerous suicidal episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all emotions arise at very subtle levels. And if we can learn to identify them, then we can begin to work with our emotions in a place where it can be easier. Not that you want all emotions to be soft because emotions need to do what they do, but it can be easier if you've got a problem emotion, an emotion that you've got a problem with, not the emotions, the problem, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you learn how to identify it when it's in a softer state so that you can make your correcting actions then instead of being completely overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, and if you're listening to this folks, you know, when you're trying to stop drinking, it's that trigger, you know, if we hadn't, if we didn't have a trigger, we'd all be able to give up drinking alcohol the same as we could give up drinking celery juice if we wanted to. It's that, (laughs) it's that trigger. And uh, I hear two schools of thought, like in my community, one is I just lost my shit and I had, I had to drink. So we, we've, 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 we've bypassed everything to like that, that intent. And then there's, I don't know what happened. And each one of them is a lack of awareness around feeling because yes. we're, we're spending too much time up here trying to rationalize the problem instead of going, oh, wow, my kid just told me to stop being sarcastic. That's a medium form of anger. Oh, why am I triggered? Why am I being sarcastic? What has happened? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. And having those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, so much of addiction that I see is people are finding a way to work with emotions that they don't know how to work with or or feelings of overwhelm or helplessness. And to make that decision, I'm going to drink or use or, or move into whatever my addiction is. There's a way that that relieves helplessness. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I made yeah. a decision. Now, it's not a great decision, as we know. Mm. And it's not going to do anything in the long run to to unearth that area of emotional and and relational helplessness. Yeah. It's not going to relieve that overwhelm. Not in the long run. It might for today, right? but yeah. then you go back. You know, let's say you've you know you've done your thing. You kind of wake up from it, and the next time you hit that same place of helplessness. What skills have you developed? Yeah. None. 
right? The only skill you have is this kind of displacement activity. Mm. And so for me, working with the emotions, especially if they're painful, I was going to say even if, but I'm like, especially if they're painful, that can help you understand yourself so much. Mm. I love that. So if someone's if someone's listening and they have an anger issue yeah. and they start to feel the and I tell you, one of the things to do is go to Carla's website. We'll give you the details later on and download. She has um, a list of emotions, which is quite vast and it enables you to look and go, oh, wow, I'm actually feeling that. And it might not even be in your vocabulary. So have a look at that. So let's say somebody is feeling a, a subtle form of anger. Yeah. And they've listened to this podcast and they're like, okay, I don't, I don't want to spill this all over everybody. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I'm feeling like I need to release this. Like, how would you advise, I mean, how would you advise them to A, have the emotional release and then do it in a way that ties it up. So you're protecting other people from that. I would say rather than releasing the emotion, it would be to engage with it empathically with the questions. I've, I've developed questions for each emotion that, lean into what the emotion does. Mm. So the question for anger is what do I value and what must be protected and restored? But we, we move the value question first, mm. because if I'm just getting pissy as hell and, you know, I'm just like steaming around the house, you know, like little steam coming out my ears and to ask to stop myself and say, what do I value? That really helps me. And I'm like, well, I value my independence. I value my relationship with my husband. I value honesty. Then I can move from there into what do I want to do with this energy that I have rather than just go and just be a jerk. Um, And then to be able to say, you know, Tina, when you said this, it felt like you were saying this. Is that what you meant? Give him a chance first And (laughs) and then find out what's happening. But But for me, anger brings you the power you need to be vulnerable. And a lot of people only see the power and their question for anger isn't what do I value? It's where can I find a weapon? (laughs) That's not the question for anger. Okay. Um, And then what, what boundary needs to be set? So you know, like, for instance, when people do a lot of anger, a lot of anger, we would say that they have a rage disorder. I wouldn't say that, though. I would say, what is in this person's life continually that mm-hmm. is continually breaking his or her boundaries? Why is this anger present? Not why does this person have a character flaw, but why is this anger present and what is it doing that is necessary? That's a much better question than, oh, well, you're just broken. <laughs> That's, you know, like, you're just broken. So. Asking the question of the emotion helps you develop an empathic, supportive relationship with the emotion so that it can do what it needs to do. It came to give you the strength you need to be vulnerable and to set a boundary. Okay. And yeah, and if you use it as a weapon or if you you know shove it down with repression, both of those release the emotion. They get rid of it. But now you still don't have any skills and you Mm. haven't set a boundary and you haven't been vulnerable. Can I yeah. give an example that happened to me a couple of days ago? Yeah. That might uh, might shine a light on the vulnerable side of it. So I would about three days ago, um, a friend of mine said reacted to something that I had said, and it really triggered a lot of anger within me and judgment. And I sat with it for three days. And then I went back 
and I shared with him how what he'd said, how I felt mm-hmm. emotionally after what he'd said, how it impacted me emotionally, my need in that moment, and then my request of him moving forward. And that felt very vulnerable for me to mm-hmm. do that because I just wanted to hide and run away and not face it. Like, oh, he's yeah. really upset me, but I can't tell him that. So I just, I just went to him and I expressed my vulnerability. And I felt that that was um, a good way of dealing with my anger in that moment without spew, like I would have done in the past, which would have been, who the hell do you think you are to say that and getting into a tit for tat? Is that an example of what you're talking about when it comes to vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah. And also for me, when I'm angry, because I spent a lot of my life being very, very angry, I've learned to give people a chance. To, for instance, my husband kept checking. We have a, like, uh, we swim, and he kept checking on me about, did you swim today? And I was like, no, I'm doing tomorrow. And then when I come back in, he says, well, you didn't do an hour. And I was starting to get really peeved because I was like, are you checking up on my exercise? I was like, what's going on? And so I started getting angry and angry. And I finally just went, okay, what's valuable to me? To, you know, it's, And I said, I'm having a problem with something and I want to tell you, I want to ask you, when you ask me about swimming, are you like monitoring my exercise? Mm. And that's what it feels like. And he was able to say, I am monitoring you in a way, but it's because I want to make sure that you get your exercise before I go in the pool, right? Because um, my schedule is so busy. So he's Mm. trying to gauge how much exercise I do and what he can do around it, right? So his intention was entirely different than what I picked up. Yeah. So the vulnerability was for me not to say, you are monitoring my exercise, you bastard, you know, (laughs) and stop it. Right. And then I've created this, like I've set a really hard boundary by telling him who he is and what he meant and what he's doing to me. And now I'm just learning to ask people. And sometimes I've got it right. Yeah. You're being a jerk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was, but a lot of times it's just having that vulnerability to, to make the relationship the most important thing rather than my, than my sense of, of being hurt. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, what would I do there? Where would my vulnerability? It would definitely be the codependency. I would be like, what if I get this wrong? <laughs> you know, the vulnerability of me, what would it? And now it's kind of like, no, you you need to validate your assumption because that's not fair for the other person that you're thinking this on them. That's not fair. Yeah. Um, a lot, a lot of the times it's just bullshit story, you know, from the past that you just hang on to. You need to really to give them time, like you say, yeah, you know, to and, explain and, what's going on. And to be aware enough about what I'm feeling mm. rather than making him responsible for what I'm feeling. Yeah. Say, this is what's going on for me. Is that what you intended? Yeah. And it's like, no. Not at all. <laughs> no. Mm. <laughs> but I'm <Can> sorry. <laughs> can I talk about another emotion that is... Um, when I think of anger, I think of this other emotion tied to it, but it might not be. It's not one of the emotions that I picked up out of the book and really studied deep because I don't think I've, I don't associate with it. That doesn't yeah. mean I've never felt with it, but it came up with a client the other day. So I really wanted to ask your opinion on it. And that's hatred. Could you just talk a little bit? And this is a wonderful time, I think, 
to touch upon the the brilliance and amazingness of emotions in general and to cut that societal conditioning hocus pocus out you know talk about hatred i love hatred and it's a weird thing to say but there is a very specific practice for hatred that i talk about sort of immediately and it's shadow work carl Jung mm. developed that but what hatred signals to me is the complete and utter loss of boundaries we are what we hate is what was disallowed in us, but someone is living it. Someone is living it and the skies are not opening and God is not smiting them. And we were told that if this were to happen and if we were to behave this way, all hell would break loose. And it's not. So hatred is seeing something inside ourselves that we were told or we agreed never to be, never to, never to allow and someone's living it. And I call them rage quakes. Like we get rage quakes inside and we're like, I hate that guy. Um, if you can do shadow work, you can know immediately to write down what you hate mm. and to see how that engages with the rules that you've set for yourself or the rules that other people have set for you. Now, what's really interesting about hatred, it's a projection of the unwanted self, the demonized self infatuation or adoration is the projection of the you know the beloved self the thing i can never be oh i'll never be as good a singer as you are oh oh this mm. person you know fan behavior is adoration uh, behavior when they look at the brain in hatred and adoration the same part lets wow wow <laughs> so i don't know if they call it the projection part but basically you are projecting outward. Now, this is very different because people, when they hear that, they're like, hold on. What about Hitler? You know, like, oh, Hitler, poor Hitler. He's Hitler like, gets everything, right? I use, him as, I use him all the time. He yeah. gets everything. But but the idea that, that I am seeing something of myself in the hated person generally makes people go a little cattywampus inside. They're like, oh, hell no. That is exactly not who I am. And let me tell you the 15 different ways. Um mm disliking a person is fine. Um, being angry with a person is fine. Feeling like that person is not doing, you know, this is not okay what they're doing. But hatred is a very different thing than just dislike, right? Mm. Hatred is like, why I, you know, like I, you, you wish, you wish harm on the person. Right. And that's when your boundaries have broken so far that you lose your ethics. And that's why shadow work is so important, because when I move into hatred, I'm like, whoa, I got some shadow work to do, you know, and I can always find out what it is if I just kind of write down what is so hateful and disgusting about this person. Mm -hmm. um, somebody, I don't think you're not in the United States, are you? Yeah, I'm in L.A., yeah. OK, OK, L.A., right. So our past president <laughs> yeah. was like a shadow Olympics for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, it was so, and, and trying to, um, Robert Bly talks about eating the shadow, trying mm. to eat the shadow of this person who is living just so much horror for so many of us and, and continually not hating him, feeling very, very concerned about all the damage that he wrought and all the damage that is inside him but not hating him, not wishing him ill was, mm. 
at first it was really hard. And then I got, I got like a rhythm with it. Right. <laughs> Every time I'd be like, okay, I'm settled. And then he would bring it up a level. I'm like, damn it, you dude. I That's why he said he tested you. He's tested like, you. That dude owes me cash money. <laughs> you could write a whole book about the shadow <laughs> Olympics of Donald Trump. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to get paid because he don't pay people. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> So what's going on for me then around hatred, right? So I don't identify as ever hating somebody. Mm-hmm. I definitely identify with the adoration side of it. But there's another word that comes up for me, and that's schadenfreude. Yeah. So I do experience schadenfreude. For those of you listening, you not, you know, it's like I see somebody and I want to have a fall. Like I, I want some misfortune to go their way, but I don't hate them. So yeah. Uh, is there subtler forms of hatred? Yes. <laughs> like, ah, okay, okay, yeah. right. I love Schadenfreude. What's really important about Schadenfreude, at least in the in the German, um, is that it is someone is brought low. So it has to be someone who has maybe more than they should, or has lived the easy life and just is having things that really. Do they deserve that? And, you know, watching them fall. So Mm. there is a very sociological fairness aspect to shot to anybody who's a shot and for the target for us. Mm. Um, They did some studies on a man standing by uh, his yacht, you know, dressing that whole yachting white dude. Yeah. And they pushed him in the water. Everybody laughed. And, you know, just like falling down laughing. And then they showed a similar person standing by a little rowboat with with raggedy clothes and he Mm. fell in the water. Nobody left. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same fall. But when the person was perceived to have just too much as he should have been perceived, right? People thought it was funny. So there's something kind of um, there's something primal about schadenfreude and and unfairness. I don't know if you've seen, uh, there's a wonderful video of capuchin monkeys with uh, Sir Franz de Waal, who's a primatologist. And they give them, they give the little capuchins, um, what is it, a cucumber. Hmm. And they're just happy as anything. There's one in a cage and one next to them and they give them cucumber. And then they give one of them grapes and they gave the other one cucumber. And he looks at his cucumber and he throws it at her. <laughs> he wants his grapes. I know. He's like, this is not fair. I'm not having this. And so this fairness thing seems to be really. This is really why people drink wine. It's like, it's a great, it's a great versus cucumber debate. Yeah. Um, have them drink cucumber wine. Yeah. No, nobody wants that. I uh, know. I've done that. I've done that. It's not very nice. When, when you, when you were talking about Schadenfreude then and talk and, and talking about like the status hierarchy and the sociology mm-hmm. of that, something came up for me and I, and I said, and I said in my mind, Ah, Lee, you're very good at creating fake status hierarchies. So I I don't need somebody to necessarily have more money than me or anything. I will, through my own self-worth, project that this person is better than me in some area. And particularly if it's in an area where I'm working, and then I will want them to fall. So, for example, helping people to quit alcohol, there is a little part of me that wants everybody else that's helping people to quit alcohol to fall flat on their face. Even (laughs) even though there's a part of me that wants the greater good for everybody to stop (laughs) drinking alcohol, right? 
<laughs> I'm being vulnerable now. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that is, I mean, in, in a certain way, you want to know that your work is valuable. Mm. And especially if people are doing things that are very like a counter to what you're doing, it is nice. Go, there's a wonderful quote to have a book remaindered means it's sold for like a dollar. And the quote is, the books of my enemy have been remaindered. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone's got it. I just love that. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. You know, there's, there's a place where you kind of go forward with your unusual career and you're doing what Mm -hmm. you do, Mm. but I'm sure you heard, have heard people say, Oh, have you heard of this person who's doing this thing? They're so awesome. You're like, that's so great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not, if you're not, if you're not watching a video now, you can see, you should have seen Carla's face there. Uh, Yeah. But I think the key thing is, again, it's the awareness, right? It's like, what I do is I'm like, Oh, I, in my head, a voice will go off a part. Like a part of Lee Davy will be like, yeah, I hope that person's book fails. And then I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Let's have a little look at that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that's like, that's been the key for me kind of growing from a boy to a man and in being, and I'm still in that kind of like journey. That, that's been key. A new book has really helped with that. It's like, okay, ah, what are you feeling right now? Where is the emotion? Where is it in the body? What's he trying to say to you? The reminder of those questions is really beautiful sadness so i see in my work when i work with people and trying to help them to uncover why they're drinking massive links between anger and sadness both one of the link i see uh, the see with it as well is um you mentioned it earlier on i see a lot of people who don't know how to be angry and they don't know how to be sad yeah yeah yeah. so talk about sadness we interrupt this podcast episode, which, by the way, is much better than anything that Joe Rogan or Sam Harris or Lewis House has ever put out in their life to bring you some news. It's a news flash. It's very important, ladies and gentlemen. If there's anything that needs to be known about shame, anger, anxiety, sadness, joy, hatred, Lee Davy knows it all because he's upset everybody using all of those emotions, but he doesn't do that anymore. If you want to be the same as him, if you want to hire this guy as your master coach and change your life and build your rocket and flight Mars, email him at 1kdaysover at gmod.com and he will be in your corner forevermore. Right, without further ado, back to this wonderful conversation with Carla McLaren. Sadness is a beautiful emotion that I call the all-purpose healing balm of the soul. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. That's a tweet. That's a tweet on Instagram post. Hashtag, hashtag, all-purpose healing balm. That what sadness does is it comes forward to help us let go of something that isn't working anyway. But if people don't understand their sadness, they think it comes to steal their stuff. And I'm like, no, sadness does not steal your stuff. It comes forward to help you when there's something that isn't working. And that's relationship, clutter, some ideas you have, right? Just things that aren't working. Sadness will come and help you relax, release, and let go. Just let it go. Mm. And that might involve crying. There's a problem with sadness and anger. It's gendered. Women are generally allowed to have sadness and men are not. Men are not allowed to cry or to show sadness. And so you've got a lot of men with a lot of clutter in their soul that can't Mm. go anywhere. Mm. Now, women are not allowed to feel or 
produce anger, mm. right? There's men are. Mm. So men tend to know how to set boundaries, even, you know, in a rough way. And women tend to know how to let go. This is not always true. And yeah. that's, you know, there's a gender binary there, but um, <clears throat> that's generally the rule. So for half of the species, or, you know, at least here in the Western, in the Western world, sadness is unacceptable. Mm. And so that healing of being able to say, do I need this? Nope. Let it go. Is this still working? No, let it go. You know, just that continual flow of sadness is not available to people and not knowing how to do sadness, I think is, is, I think is a cultural problem. It's like, we don't know how to do anger. And I'm wondering if the gendering of them, uh, like we have a name for women who show anger and it rhymes with witch. And mm. we have a name for men who show sadness and it rhymes with wussy. Right. So we have very derogatory terms for people who show human emotions. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if we don't know how to use anger and we don't know how to use sadness because half of humanity has been like, we cannot share with each other. Like we mm -hmm. can't, we can't work with each other. So I think not knowing how to work those two emotions is not a personal failing at all. I think it's, mm -hmm. I think it's fully enculturated. Yeah, I uh, every time I work with somebody and do some inner child work around that, there's always a there's always a link and there's always a memory of somebody shutting you down at some point and not allowing you to have that voice, you know, and 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 then enabling that child to have that emotional release is really important. Actually, when I think about sadness and my father, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of like tough, tough thing. I tell you a story, King Kong. <laughs> so I, I used to love watching King Kong as a kid seven eight but i would always cry when he fell from the empire state building and my dad would wait until that moment and he would call me a pussy for actually crying and he would ridicule me to this day i use tv really triggers my sadness i, I cry so much at, at things i i'm like why am i even crying at this and then i'll <laughs> when i think about it it's generally the archetype of a father wound generally yeah. And it might be just your physiology. So many years of not crying or being mm. or being called a name for crying. It's like you got mm. some catching up to do. <laughs> yeah, I got some crying. I got some serious crying. You to got do. a lot of crying to do. Um, we call my husband Tino a prodigious weeper. Because yeah, like, we'll watch them. We don't watch them anymore because they're crap. But you know those um like the voice where people come on and they sing to the oh, backs of these Carla, famous, I would oh cry watching God, those reality TV shows all the time. Yeah, I'm the same. Tino and I cry. Yeah. We stopped watching it because after they're chosen, they're just treated like cattle. And our yeah, favorite yeah. people never win. Yeah. They're, like they're all the African-American people and the, and the, the people on the margins. They never win. There's always some boring person who wins. But, yes. um, is there a yeah. link? Is there a link there? Like you know, we were talking earlier on about hatred and the shadow side being projected when we see somebody behaving in a way that we kind of know that we behave or we weren't allowed to behave. And then adoration, yeah. we look at someone and we're kind of like, ah, oh, deep back there, there's a there's an artist or a dancer that's just yeah. not been allowed to emerge. And then with this, with the weeping, with the X factor and that. Yeah. Is there a part of me when I'm watching it that's kind of like, I really want to be that person? Yeah. Is there, a, is there an aspect of that as well? I think 
there's a projection. For me, there's also the crying about the person being witnessed for mm-hmm. being for being an artist. Yeah. Um, it's sad what happens later because I think these shows, these shows give us such a bad vision of what it is to be an artist, which is you're in constant competition. Mm. That's not how art works. You, mm. you find your soul and you try to speak it in whatever art form you have. It's not a competition. There's nobody mm. who can do what you can do. So yeah, you know, just have a bunch of people who are just really beautiful and then just sing in karaoke for the rest of the season until they're eliminated. I'm like, nah. <laughs> no, that's not cool. And <laughs> sadness and flow. So that's one thing mm-hmm. I really got out of your work. So like yeah. when I get super sad, I'm kind of like, I'm shaking mm-hmm. my, I'm going, yeah, get this uh-huh. sadness going, you know, not even with tears. I just feel it in that flow. Talk a little bit about the flow state and sadness. Yeah, there is, um, <clears throat> one of the things I noticed is uh, the sadness practice that we use is called grounding, where basically you're breathing in and just letting go. And what mm-hmm. I've noticed is that all practices like yoga or meditation or anything that involves breathing and relaxing is using sadness, but most people don't know it. So anything that can help you let go, sort of get into your body, embody yourself and release is a sadness practice. So there's a lot of times because of the very unhealthy relationship we have, or we've been taught to have with sadness. And even though women are allowed to have sadness, they will be shamed for crying in public. So really Do they have sadness? I don't think so. But um, there are a number of times when you will need to cry, but you, your other emotions will jump out in front of it because they're like, you're going to lose face here. There's, Mm. it's not safe for you to cry. And a lot of people will just repress their tears and put on a, you know, I'll show you with my body. uh, People would be like, no, they get tight. Their whole body Mm. gets tight and they remove Mm. the flow, even with the, you know, no, I'm not going to cry. Yeah. Um, that what I've learned to do is when I need to cry and it's clearly not a safe place to cry, I'll just let my body flow. Yeah. Right. So I'll tell my sadness, I can't cry right now. Okay. But right. I'm going to let things go. I'm just going to breathe and I'm, I'm going to pay attention to the fact that you're here mm. and you and I will have a secret relationship <laughs> <laughs> right now <laughs> in this terrible place. <laughs> I love the way, but it shows like, like the movie inside out, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it's like you're showing that you are, how you're getting to know your emotions. Like you're talking yeah. to them. You have a relationship with them. Whereas when, when we raised, like I, I was raised in the seventies, eighties, right? So you've raised literally, you're not allowed to have joy. Stop making that noise. Stop shouting. Who do you think you are? Stop crying. You're woofed out. Like no, it's just yeah. no emotions that you're allowed to have. Right. Yeah. Um, so you just forget about it and you just live in your head until yeah. someone like you come along, some Jedi. And then you're like, Oh, right. I got a body. Okay, what? let's give that a try. Um, can we talk about shame? Oh, I love shame. I love it so much. Um, and I know that's unusual. Shame's job, shame is sort of like a sibling to anger, whereas anger helps you set boundaries from the inside, right? When someone's stepping across, your anger should say, hold it, bud, that's far enough. Mm. Shame's job is to make sure it's looking at you from outside or And it's making sure that you don't do anything to break your own boundaries Mm. or the boundaries of others. So shame is going to be continually saying, hello, what? Are you sure you want to say that? Is that the decision you just made? You know, 
And that's shame's job. And one of the things that I've realized about shame over the years is that it is what one of our licensees, Sarah Alexander, calls shame is your loyal um, assistant. Mm. That it takes the agreements that you've made or that you were talked into or that you picked up through a cultural osmosis. And it says, this is your moral structure and I'm going to help you live up to it. And that's great if your moral structure is, I like to be nice to people and I <laughs> should floss. Yes. Right. And that's my moral structure. My shame's like, did you floss? And I'm like, yes. And shame's you rock. But what if your moral structure is no one will love you until you're perfect. And some poor schmo comes to love you and your shame goes on a freaking bender yeah because that messaging that and i call them contracts that contract you signed is unlivable and is grotesque and sadly people blame shame for it i'm like shame is just doing what you asked it to Mm. which is make sure that no one can love you till you're perfect. Now that is a disgusting job, but shame's been doing it. Mm. So that's why Sarah's calling it the loyal assistant. It will do what you ask it to. And so the big work with shame is if you've got something that's extremely painful and shame is dogging you and, and, and slapping you down and waking you up at night and slapping you on the face twice four times, you need to look at that agreement. That was made, not try to get rid of the shame. And most people try to get rid of the shame. Mm. Like you can't, it's a, you know, it's a part of your, your neurology. It's a part of your social and uh, emotional and moral structure. So it's those agreements that, and I think if we all kind of look at, we can find what those agreements are. If we listen to our shame, shame's like, you're not good enough. You're not tall enough. You're not smart enough. Mm. Where did that come from? Mm. Where to come from? And then the work with shame is to go and find those those messages and destroy them with the flame of rage, right? <laughs> Set a boundary about those in messages. a safe in a safe place. In a safe, don't do it in California. Do not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, do not honestly, no fire in California. Oh, okay? <laughs> I I uh, I was in a coaching container recently, and I went through a process called a burial where I had to burn a contract no. and, I, and I went out to do it. And I was like, I was in LA and I was like, I can't burn this thing. So I started eating it. <laughs> I was eating my contract. I was like, and then I was like, no, put it back in my body. So I just ripped it up through out the window. Um, but yeah, I, I love the whole ritualization around burning contracts. And uh, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was really beautiful. And also you just touch upon, um, healthy shame and uh, internalized toxic shame, you know, like in Bradshaw's work. What's your thoughts and views on that? One of the things that I've realized is that shame is always just shame. The thing that is unhealthy is the message it's working on or the contract it's working on. Mm. So my, the same shame that tells me, asks me, did you floss? And I go, yes. And shame goes, you rock is the same shame that comes up to say someone's trying to love you and you're not perfect. So you're going down lady. <laughs> Do you know right. what I mean? right. It's the same shame. So right. the toxicness is attached to the contract. And if we can get rid of a contract like that, then shame will be like, phew, that was a terrible job. 
I don't want that anymore. Yeah, that's a shitty job that you gave me. And I was like, I'm sorry, shame. I didn't know. I didn't know. Everybody, everybody signed it in my family. (laughs) Dad, what you just said then reminds me of uh, Richard (laughs) Swartz. Richard Schwartz's work around internal family systems. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, You know, where he's he's saying in that case, recognize and identify the shame and then give it a different job. Make make, love it. Make it make it known that it is that is loved, that it is seen, that it is witnessed. Thank it for helping create those internal boundaries. But then say, hey. This shitty job I give. How about you have a different job, and then you think of a better way of utilizing that shame skill. And and each time, shame's like, "Yep, I'll take that new job." Shame's like, "Woohoo! This is the best job <laughs> ever." I was like, "Shame, you can watch after um, how I load the dishwasher, okay?" You know? Yeah, or the flossing <laughs> of the teeth, or yeah. some, something less arduous. Yeah, I like that. Fear. Fear. Beautiful. Can I just can I just say before you talk about fear? This one blew my mind, by the way. Like you can have a picture of me reading your book at night, <laughs> listening while no one was around me, hearing the hum of the fridge, <laughs> and realizing in that moment that the fear was laser like focus was incredible for me. Talk about it. Yeah. A lot of people, again, here we're going to talk about panic because a lot of people confuse fear and panic, just like they confuse anger and panic. Mm. And fear is our instincts and intuition about what's around us and what might have changed or what's new, what's novel. If there's any danger, panic will come in because that's panic's job. But fear itself is our capacity to um, orient to the present moment. If we're generally graceful and we don't walk into walls, we're good with our fear because we know it's around us. We know mm. where we are. We, um, we hear something, we're able to orient to it and see, was that dangerous or is it just the mailman? Mailman, uh, mm. <laughs> mail carrier. Um, so, uh, <laughs> it's never a woman here in our neighborhood, but oops, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Fear is our awareness of the present moment, and it's our instincts and it's our intuition. And as soon as there's danger, panic must come in because panic needs to, you know, get things locked down. But they're not the same emotion. Mm. And a lot of people would say that fear, you know, no fear. (laughs) When I see people with no fear on their on their bumper sticker, I'm like, I'm going to let you go ahead because you got no instincts or intuition. So I'm just going to slow down here and just let you go. Um, yeah. But, but I think people want to f- think that they are um, untouchable. Mm. You know what I mean? Nothing can hurt me. I'm like, well, that's silly. Have you lived in the world? Um, so that might be what some of that hatred of fear is. But also I think there's another, another, issue with panic that Mm. if we feel threatened at all panic needs to get in there right if your life is threatened panic needs to be there yeah um yeah it's um i feel societal conditioning has a big impact again on fear especially around lads and boys like i i was brought up i was brought up to deal with the problem of fitting in and people calling me racial slurs my dad taught me God bless him. It's not my dad's fault, but my dad taught me to just react with violence to that. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, you cannot be afraid 
you've got to smash this guy. I'm like, actually, I'm really afraid. And if you were to, if I was to ask the question in that moment, what is fear trying to tell me right now? Yeah. Well, fear is clearly telling me not to punch this six foot guy in the face because my dad <laughs> told me to. But I wasn't allowed to allow fear to do his job. I had to yeah. wade through it, you know, and probably utilize panic um, yeah. as my as my camaraderie, which probably explains why I had a lot of anger issues when I grew older and try to control my kids and my wives through that vehicle right could yeah very definitely have a link there you know so yeah 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 that we do so much damage to boys and men in the in the realm of emotion mm. we just and and understanding emotion as like the center of the soul that emotions underlie every possible thought behavior action dream idea emotions are under all of it they're the language of the soul mm. and for men to be so kind of assiduously separated from their emotions is a horror of you know massive massive um loss of the soul and of the self and so mm. when men are coming toward their emotion i'm like you go dude i will support you <laughs> <laughs> come on over here we have cake we have emotion cake <laughs> we'll sort you out we'll sort you out i i actually when i'm guiding people around the issue of an alcohol problem i'm, I'm always teaching there is an emotion tied to the reason you're drinking. Like there is yeah. always an emotion. And if you can figure out what that emotion is, it gives us a great opportunity to figure out what the heck is going on beneath yeah. that iceberg. Right. But the, yeah. there is always an emotion, whether it's joy, I'm at a, a christening or a wedding, um, um, grief, I'm at a funeral, fear, something's just happened. And I've just seen somebody get like hurt and I, I don't want to, don't know what to do. Like it, it's always an emotion there tied to drinking. So the, again, why your work is so amazing. Can we end on one that I find really, really difficult actually? And I have no, I, I do have some ideas why I find it difficult, but it surprised me. And that's joy. joy. Um, yeah. I, sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what joy looks like. And I really struggle with that. So talk about joy and um, maybe you can heal me in the process in two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. There you go. That's not hard. My shame's like, I just don't know if you can do this. Oh, no. But, um, I love it. Well, I want to talk about the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is a kind of a lighter, more momentary um, emotion that tells you when things are going like yay and also when there's something to look forward to so a lot of people want happiness all the time but happiness is like why is there anything to look forward to <laughs> is there something funny right now i don't think so so happiness gets called to the scene more than it should mm. for a healthy emotion right this, the poor happiness is like i was resting <laughs> Can you have sadness deal with this? Um, but happiness is about sort of looking forward to the future or or feeling like, yeah, everything's awesome. Joy is a is a different emotion in the happiness family that comes forward when you have reached some kind of pinnacle. And like, you know, you've traveled for, for weeks and you've gotten to the best place or you've worked for a long time and you've completed the thing. It's like this, it's a huge emotion, it's massive. One of the things that joy does 
is it drops your boundaries. It's a boundaryless emotion. Mm. And this can be a problem if you stay in joy for too long because it is the mania side of um, uh, bipolar. Right. Uh, and um, what happens with joy is this, this new thing has happened. You've achieved this thing and your boundaries drop so that you can sort of upload and then go on to the next thing. And then maybe you'll see joy in another. So joy should be following something that you've done or someplace you've gone or something that has occurred that makes you want to drop your boundaries and upload what, what has happened, right? But what happens if you drop your boundaries? Your anger's gone. Your shame goes. Your sadness goes. Like, there's nothing to let go of because you're uploading. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no boundaries. There's no anger. There's no inner boundaries. There's no shame. And that's when you'll see in many a behavior, people like, I can have sex with whoever I want right. with whatever drugs I want. And yeah. I don't need money, right? So there's... There's, there's, there's trouble in joy that people don't mm. talk about. So it could be that your intelligent emotional system is a little bit avoiding joy because of that boundary dropping situation, mm. right? Well, so we have joy um, at orgasm, right? Mm. And you can't stay at that place for very long. It's tiring, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it should, joy should be a momentary dropping of all boundaries and sort of becoming one with with everything yeah and imagine how imagine how vulnerable you imagine how vulnerable you are in the massively. moment after orgasm you know yeah. you're massively vulnerable in joy and something uh, i don't know if you know but i'm a cult researcher and one of the ways that cults get people attached is by what's called love bombing or keeping people up and giving them extreme ecstatic experiences all the time Mm. until they're broken down right. right and then they become they become much more susceptible to social control oops mm. oops. <laughs> oops that's no good so joy is beautiful and there's there's danger in joy if, if it goes on for too long yeah got a question to ask you about that but before i do i just want to <laughs> i just want to touch upon the orgasm thing and yeah. the the vulnerability in that and say i once read a book called the Tao of sexology by dr stephen chang <laughs> and he had a list of places you shouldn't have sex and one of them was in a battlefield <laughs> and i remember reading it thinking who on earth in the middle of a battlefield is thinking to have sex and i just thought of that when you said i was like yeah it's very vulnerable in a battlefield when you have to walk at them oh dr stephen chang <laughs> You did, you did, you did, you did fill my head with some stuff. Um, How does pleasure come into that? So I'm thinking like, so for example, I still get confused. So like people say to me, Lee, you need to have some fun or Lee, you need to get more pleasure in your life or Lee, you need to have more joy. And I'm so focused on my work. I'm like, I love, I love this. I'm just going to like chew the fat with uh, uh, Carla and just have amazing, this is this is amazing. Why, why do I need to go and jump on a roller coaster? So, uh, and, and so, I don't know, I get torn between that kind of like that boundary around work and loving it and play and pleasure. And I get a bit confused, I think. I have to say, I'm more like you, that I love work. Work is my play. 
And so people say, what do you do for fun? I'm like, are you kidding? I work. <laughs> right. Okay. You're making me feel normal. You're, t- you're talking to my shame right now. I love it. I love work. I just wrote a book called About the Workplace. And, um, and I, I say there, I might be strange, but I love work. Mm-hmm. I love to work. I love making businesses and things like that. So for me, that's fun and play. For other people, work is freaking drudgery. Mm. You know, it's terrible and they need to do things. But when I'm like on a vacation, I was like, this is a lot of work vacation. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> I like I, I'm bored. I need to do something. Yeah, it's like I had to pack. I'm not my bed's not here. I don't have like my favorite things. And yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So I'm normal then. You're normal, work loving kind of a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I I mean, I can see how my decision to stop drinking 10 years ago and a lot of issues around trust with men that I've learned from my own shadow work. I can I can see how now is the time for me to go out and meet some men and have some fun, kick a ball around, I yeah. don't know, throw some axes. <laughs> I, I don't know what men do these days. I, I'm, I am feeling a pull to do that kind of thing. But yeah. at the same time, I just want to stay in the house and read a book. But I'm going to give it a go. And if I was going to read a book, then I'd read your new book. Tell us about it. What What are you get? What are you doing right now? And how can people find you? What should they be reading? And uh, what should into? you be reading? Um, I'm at CarlaMcLaren.com, and I have an online uh, uh, academy called Empathy Academy, where people can take courses and work with specific emotions or all of them. And um, I'm teaching a course on anxiety starting next week. Um, My newest book is called The Power of Emotions at Work. Mm. And really, it's about how to make the workplace as fun as my workplace, which is fun. Um, That one of the things they did at work is is they chased emotions out. Mm. And because emotions are the center of our social skills and our our intelligence and everything we are, chasing the emotions out was the worst thing that could have been done and it's about bringing the emotions back they never left like emotions are, you know you can tell your emotions just go away and they're like oh sure i'll go away just don't tell them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure i'm leaving bye <laughs> but um but how to create emotionally and socially respectful um, social structures in the workplace because they're not right now no, I mean, what an amazing, why didn't I think of that? God, yeah. why didn't I think? Because I think about um, childhood, your parents, mm-hmm. school and your teachers, yeah. and then work. Where do you spend in the most amount of your time? Yeah. When I, I worked in the rail industry for 20 years, and towards the back end of it, we were led by a little Adolf, and um, you were not allowed to express your emotions to him. And you weren't, you, certain emotions were allowed and were not allowed in terms of how you led. So you were actually told off or demoted or disciplined for going into the softer kind of like, you know, more relatable emotions. You just wouldn't allow it to happen. So what a great book. I, I hope a lot of leaders get hold of that and make a difference in the workplace for sure. Yeah, I would really like it. There's so much despair in the workplace, just so much mm. trauma and despair. Yeah. Well, Carla, thank you very much for showing <laughs> up. Do you know when you read a book and you think to yourself, I'm going to like this author? 
sometimes you can get someone on a podcast and afterwards you're kind of like schadenfreude but <laughs> i really liked hanging with you you're a beautiful soul i can feel it you're very funny Dino's a very thank lucky you. man so thank you very much for coming on i really appreciate it thank you so much no worries thank you Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with myself and Carl McLaren talking about shame, talking about anger, talking about anxiety, talking about sadness, talking about joy, talking about hatred. Learning to feel is one of the most important aspects when it comes not to just being someone who doesn't drink alcohol, but to being an incredible human being. And you can learn all about this in the Stride Method, our six-month powerhouse of a program our beautiful family okay come on board do the workshop get into the family come on to our online meetings get into our marco polo groups it is tip top people absolutely love it and it's going at a knockdown drag out price 295 pounds or something like that it's absolutely a steal it's a steal i can't believe i'm giving it away Email me at 1kdaysober at gmail.com to see how you can sign up today. Much love, people.